Hello, my name is Oliver Patel and I'm a research assistant at the UCL Grand Challenges. Welcome to the Exploring Inequalities podcast. Today we're going to talk about place and I'm joined by Professor Nick Gallant. Hi Ollie. hi. Thanks for joining me. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and um, the work you're involved in? So I'm a professor of planning and housing here at UCL. Most of my work focuses on I suppose the housing crisis, housing markets, housing affordability, and also the role of planning in facilitating housing growth where that growth is necessary, and also the role of planning in engineering solutions to the housing crisis, including planning for affordable housing. And of course, you are one of the co-chairs of the overall Exploring Inequalities project. In our main report, which we, we discuss on each podcast, one of our five cross-cutting themes was place. And today we're going to focus on the issue of place and how mm-hmm. it links to inequalities, structural inequalities more generally. So would you be able to talk a bit about how you view the relationship between place or geography and structural inequalities? I think it's recognised today that geography is a very uh, important determinant of someone's advantage, someone's access to jobs, to healthcare, the quality of infrastructure that is provided in place uh, for people basically to live happy and prosperous lives. So geography is very important and we hear all the time about places that are left behind or have been kept behind by a lack of infrastructure investment and the way in which where people live affects their daily lives, but also their prospects uh, for the future. What is a left-behind place? How does a place become kept behind or left behind? And what, what does that actually mean in, in the reality of how... So over, how- over time, places' economies change, largely because of the manner in which they're connected. Places are connected to each other, or places are connected to areas of employment growth or employment decline. It's quite possible that a place that was prosperous 50 or 100 years ago because of economic change, because of uh, competition between countries, between different regions, goes into uh, economic decline. And there are no alternative sources of employment, or what there is is low paid. And people generally find themselves in a place that is not as wealthy as it once was. And the lack of income, the income deprivation that you can therefore feel, can have a broader effect on people's lives. And it may be difficult in those locations, for example, to uh, fund the appropriate infrastructure. There may be declining value in those places that can be extracted through the planning system and that can be recycled into infrastructure. It may be that those places uh, struggle to attract teachers, doctors and so forth. So over time, a place that has lost its economic base or the economic base has been weakened will find itself experiencing a broad set of related issues which will impact on on the people living in those places and particularly those people who may be older, who may not possess the correct skills to be able to move away or may not wish to move away because of uh, family connection. Would you say that if we compare cities or towns which are left behind or kept behind, would we see a very similar set of problems or is each place experiencing a unique set of problems? There are generally issues about the sort of changes in the the geography of the economy over time and the way in which, for example, Britain in many manufacturing sectors has been outcompeted 
and those industrial towns of 50 or 60 years ago may no longer have the sort of capacity to deliver wealth for their populations that they once did. So that you can talk about very general issues. We can think about the way in which the British economy is restructured away from manufacturing towards uh, financial services and the broad geographical impact that has had on the rise of the southeast of England, the decline of some Midlands and northern industrial towns. But actually interspersed within that broad geography, we see pockets of disadvantage in the southeast. We see places that are less accessible to the stronger uh, London employment markets. Some coastal towns have uh, suffered very particular patterns of decline. Then likewise, we have uh, rural areas which are less well connected. Their housing markets have uh, sort of stuttered and, and failed. The agricultural economy has declined over a period of decades. And we see, for example, older people in those rural areas experiencing disadvantage as compared to people who purchase second homes or retire to those areas and import their wealth with them, actually doing quite well. So as well as getting these sort of broad geographical patterns of advantage and disadvantage, it's also the case that within particular areas, particular groups experience disadvantage compared to others who may have incomes and resources that they've brought with them. So often there's gross inequality within place, but often poverty is masked by imported wealth. So this is something really interesting I want to pick up on because I think a lot of people would be able to understand you have high levels of inequality between different places. What I think is intuitively harder for people to grasp is how you can have such high levels of inequality within the same place. And, you know, there are many boroughs in London, for example. You take the borough of Kensington, where on one hand you had the you know tragic Grenfell Tower fire, and then down the street you have some of the most expensive properties in the world. How have we got to a situation where in the same geographical area you have such high levels of inequality and it's not a case of infrastructure there, for example, or or what's going on there? I think London is a very particular case. This is a, a world city. It's connected to global flows of capital. Within places like Kensington, those people who are able to purchase property, control property and control land rent are able to get very wealthy very quickly. They're able to extract profit from land and from property. On the other hand, there are people who are locked out of that particular advantage, who are reliant on public housing, who struggle with the costs of living in London, and their incomes are drained very quickly and just outcompeted within these places. I mean, public housing anchors people in places where there is great inequality. If it wasn't for that public housing, then we would probably would see greater segregation in London. Mm. But public housing enables people to live close to the jobs that they have within London. That public housing has been declining in terms of its quantity over the last 30 years. What that means is that we see people reliant on private renting in places like London. And they're being squeezed out because of rents and because of restrictions on the amount of housing benefit that they can claim. So it's quite complex. And it's really about, in terms of public housing, who can access it. And that public housing, because of historical development patterns, may well be in close proximity to uh, pockets of extreme wealth. So we see that massive contrast in places like London and London in particular. 
So do you think in a kind of perverse way, the decline in public housing could actually be leading to there actually is less inequality in an area because the people who relied upon public housing can no longer live in those areas that are close to central London and then they're they're living in private rented accommodation further away from the capital. So it's quite possible that over time, uh, I think most of the public housing that could have been sold through the right to buy has been sold. And what we're left with is property which is not wanted by the market. So those pockets of public housing are likely to remain. What we may see over time is the sort of public-private regeneration projects of public housing, decreasing the quantity of public housing and gentrifying those areas. So as you lose your public housing from those sorts of process, it may appear outwardly that there's less inequality in a very local area, but then that inequality is reinstituted at a broader geographical scale across the city as we see pockets of concentrated advantage growing and less affluent groups being shunted away from those areas. I mean, it's quite possible, I suppose, that we could see a donut effect over time with central London becoming the exclusive preserve of wealthier buyers, you know, from the global market. And then in the sort of more peripheral boroughs in London, concentrations of poverty. We, we see that in other global cities around the world. So one of the main things which we argued in the report was on the importance of infrastructure and infrastructure investment as a means to tackling inequalities. And of course, we hear a lot about major infrastructure projects in the UK. So HS2, Crossrail, Hmm. Third Runway at Heathrow, all of these kind of things. In our report, we don't say exactly what kind of infrastructure we're advocating for. But what do you think about these kind of mega projects? And are they the solution to tackling inequalities? Uh, Are they the solution? Well, infrastructure is a means of broadening economic opportunity. If you have a concentration of that opportunity in one location, then strategies can be devised to distribute it more broadly to those areas that are currently economically laggard. It's not just a matter of putting in rail infrastructure or new road infrastructure. There has to be a broader strategy to actually grow economies in peripheral or more left-behind places. And that can require things like investment in training, high-quality housing, in support not only of the local population, but in support of growing those economies with new population and new skill sets uh, coming in. So infrastructure is one part, I think, of a much broader spatial strategy that you would need to employ if you were to distribute some of London's wealth, for example, more broadly across the country to those places that have been left behind, I suppose, by uh, economic restructuring over a number of decades, but also kept behind by government's persistent sort of emphasis on assisting the London economy without paying due regard to some of these economies further afield that really need a bit of a shot in the arm. Professor Nick Gallum, thank you for talking to me. It's been really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ollie. My next guest on today's podcast is Dr. Claire Stainthorpe, who was a research assistant on the Exploring Inequalities Project. So welcome, Claire. Well, thank you. We're going to continue the discussion about place-based inequalities with a deep dive on infrastructure. So can you tell me what infrastructure is and why it matters for inequality in UK society? 
So infrastructure is a sort of really wide and varied thing, but fundamentally, in whatever ways you're looking at it, whether it's in terms of hard infrastructures such as roads and rail and Wi-Fi systems and power networks, or soft infrastructures such as community centres, parks, pubs even, libraries, all these sorts of things are incredibly variable in terms of where you are in the country. So that's to do with between different regions, um, sort of the north and south, for example, or sort of more smaller regions as well, but also within regions, whether you're in a sort of large metropolis or more on the peripheries in smaller, more rural areas, the actual differences between what you have access to can be huge. And what that means for individual people on a day-to-day basis is that they have different opportunities, they are different choices that they are even enabled to make because whether or not you have easy access to a public transport system that can get you from A to B cheaply and quickly and regularly will make a massive difference to the kind of education and employment and even things around health and what you can actually do day to day. So those are the kinds of issues that are really coming up from this sense of what infrastructure looks like Mm -hmm. in any particular area. Just taking hard infrastructure as a first instance, I think this is what most people would think of when they think of Mm -hmm. infrastructure, transportation systems, trains, buses, Mm -hmm. rails, roads. Mm -hmm. Why does it matter if you have good trains in your area or if you have good roads? Why does it matter in terms of what you can do with your life? It matters because it opens up the idea of choice and opportunity. What you're just unable to do can really be shut down if fundamentally you cannot get between two places very easily and straightforwardly. But why it matters even more is that often the ways in which people have disparities in terms of the demographics. So, for example, if you're either sort of poorer or if you are a woman, for example, who and there might be in a one-car household in a two-parent family, it may be that quite often a father might be taking the car out to work so a woman is left with no way of taking her children to the library for example if there's no sort of bus network that is regularly and cheaply Mm -hmm. allowing Mm -hmm. her to move so it's always going to be these layers of intersectional inequalities that are being exacerbated by the difference in infrastructure. Are you saying that differences in transportation provision actually has a direct impact on the sorts of opportunities and lives which people are able to live. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is exactly that because it's just so fundamentally dispersed. Mm. There are hubs such as London where something like the transport system is incredibly strong. There's huge amounts of investment in it, Mm. whereas there are other places in the UK where fundamentally that investment hasn't been there. Mm -hmm. And especially when you move out of larger cities and move into a sort of towns that are on the outskirts or um, say for example places on the coast is much harder to get from A to B. Mm-hmm. One of the problems which we picked up on in our research was that there's an issue of highly skilled professionals such as doctors and teachers mm. not going in, in large enough numbers to work in certain areas often rural areas or, mm-hmm. or deprived areas and can you explain a bit how that problem could be solved or 
how a part of the solution to that problem could be hard infrastructure. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, where people decide to live are to do with what kind of facilities there are within a particular place. So if there's a town which isn't effectively seen as desirable because it doesn't have the infrastructure in place, people who can be quite highly mobile because they're in skilled jobs which are in high demand, such as in the medical profession or in the teaching profession, can at least choose not to go to these sort of areas which really need them because they see that their quality of life would be higher somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So by investing in, say, hard infrastructures, what you're doing is one of two things, or possibly both at the same time. You're either attracting people to move to these places that are in need of people to fill uh, these kinds of roles, or you're saying that people don't necessarily have to live in that town, but if there's an easier way of transporting yourself to work, that is also going to mean that people are going to be able to commit to working in those particular areas that really need that kind of expertise. So this kind of infrastructure, say you're building a much better, more connected rail system to serve certain parts of the country which are underserved, you're Mm -hmm. both enabling people from those areas to access opportunities in other areas, maybe more urban Mm centres, and you're also encouraging highly skilled professionals who might not want to go to these as we know they're not going to these places Mm -hmm, in high mm -hmm. enough numbers to be able to either live in an urban centre and go and commute into one of these more rural towns or live in the rural town and have easier access you could be solving quite a few problems Mm -hmm. in one go by this kind of investment yeah absolutely and again it's sort of comes back to this thing I've already said the term before this idea of choice Mm -hmm. it's about people being able to decide what they want their lives and their sort of next steps in their careers for example or where they want their families to live it's about being able to make choices about that in terms of what feels like suits them best rather than being forced into certain decisions because there just isn't that flexibility Mm -hmm. there. So I think that the concept of soft infrastructure is something which people might be a bit less familiar with. Mm. So the notion that something like a pub or a community centre or a swimming pool, Mm -hmm. how does that have an impact on inequality and the quality of life people face and the inequalities between different parts of the country? So a lot of it's to do with the idea of community and the idea that... That there's been lots of research that shows that you need to be living in a place where you feel like you have networks and connections. Mm-hmm. So all of those examples that you described are places in which it's reducing isolation, mm-hmm. um, it's reducing things like loneliness, and also quite often it's an opportunity to engage with people who you might not necessarily always come into contact with and therefore there's this sense to which in order for places to be better communities it's about having people from different demographics mixing and really sort of fundamentally engaging with each other on a sort of personal individual levels and then you also have other things such as libraries for example there's been a huge amount in the press over sort of the previous decade or so mm-hmm. around the closure of libraries and why that's important and what's really come out through those sorts of campaigns and those kind of outrage around the loss of those in a lot of communities it's not just because there's less access to books but it's because there's less access to things like the internet quite often it's the way that people are mm-hmm. accessing the internet which is 
another important element of infrastructure. But it's also just to do with what that means as a community hub, a place in which parents can take children, a place that people who are sort of precarious in work or where they live, it's a sort of a safe place as well for people to exist. And so quite often that's what these kinds of spaces are doing. It's making a society a better place for people to to live day to day. It's about quality of life. Are you then saying that soft infrastructure like libraries and youth centres and, mm-hmm. and places where basically people can interact and build relationships with other people and pursue meaningful hobbies and pursuits, you're actually saying that that is fundamental as, as a public health issue. Mm-hmm. We know that things like loneliness is a public health crisis. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this kind of soft infrastructure is a public health solution? I think it is part of what can be conceived of as as a solution. There needs to be investment, obviously, across the area of health and supporting people in multiple ways. But certainly there has been a rise in what's sort of called social prescribing. And there's been sort of quite a lot of research that's gone into suggesting that while we obviously need to deal with medical issues in a medical way, there are also other things that come out of lack of community and that sort of thing which by encouraging people into spaces in which there is a sense of community that can really tackle certain kinds of health issues or things that are exacerbating poor health. There are fundamentally economic cases to be made for this sort of thing. So the Women's Budget Group, for example, have shown that investment in childcare would actually bring more money into the economy and stimulate the economy more than an equivalent investment in construction. Mm. So that kind of numerically based way of looking at it demonstrates that if we rethink our assumptions about what infrastructure can be or what infrastructure investment from a government can and should be, there are other ways, there are other directions, but it is about openness and needing to listen to the breadth of expertise, really, that there are that are sort of making these kind of cases. Well, on that note, and that's something we obviously hope that everyone will continue to do, thank you very much, Claire, for, for talking with me today. Thanks so much for having me on, Ollie.